So I can hear certainly the, the green shoots of, of acceptance that the core proposals at the very least. I think we're going to leave with those core proposals. There's clearly widespread support for increases in taxes because the message, the message has got through to our community that we have a deficit and it is getting worse and it must be dealt with. If we had a more diverse tax system, we would at least not have to be quite as reliant on income tax. He said in his view, someone on £30,000 a year is poor. Now, maybe they are, but they're not as poor as pensioners. What about having a unique selling point? We've got USPs. One of those currently, just one of those is the fact that we don't have GST. And many in our community who fear the introduction of GST fear that over the next few years, that will be the direction of travel. That's a genuine fear of theirs. I'm Kit Hanna and welcome to Focus, a Bailiwick Express podcast. This episode, I'll be joined by Matthew Leach as we nail down the ramifications of a recent debate on taxes, borrowing and the funding of major building projects from education campuses to the hospital. We'll also take a dive into what these decisions mean for you, the Guernsey resident or business, and the ongoing political fallout that has prompted searching questions. Will there be resignations? Is there no confidence in the island's most senior politicians? And could there be an early general election to break the deadlock on what to do about the fundamental issues facing our island? And this is the issue which really concerns me. In only a few years' time, we will have more than 5,000 more pensioners. They will need more pensions and healthcare, which we have absolutely no means whatsoever of affording. None. And the best way to avoid the funding crisis, which our children and grandchildren will have to pay for, is to start paying for it in moderation as soon as possible. Now, it isn't easy to create proposals over such a vast portfolio with so many moving parts. It would never be capable of pleasing everyone in a 40-person executive committee which makes up this assembly. When I explain this process to the business community, I am often met with a look at incredulity. Because when it comes down to it, one deputy's favourite pet capital project is another's spruce goose. That was Deputy Mark Hellyer, Policy and Resources' Treasury lead, laying out the challenges his committee is grappling with as they unsuccessfully tried to convince colleagues to back a package of measures, including GST, to right the island's financial wrongs. That was on the 17th of October, as our politicians started a gruelling four-day debate on the funding and investment plan. Now, that name is a big load of government jargon. Matthew, what did that involve and what was the point in discussing it? This was all about making sure Guernsey could afford what it promises to deliver and getting public finances into a long-term sustainable position. Demand for essential public services in healthcare and pensions is rapidly rising and will only grow larger due to an ageing population, increasing the cost to the taxpayer. The health department is already gobbling up more money year on year to care for patients and last year pensions cost Guernsey an additional £33 million compared to 2021. But the state also has a big to-do list of major projects for critical infrastructure, both digital and physical. It does have hundreds of millions of pounds tucked away in pots here and there, but spending this in one fell swoop without any prospect of topping it up with the current tax system would mean a loss of investment returns on those saving pots. Here's Deputy Hellyer to explain. Protecting our reserves is therefore vitally important part of the proposals before the states in this policy letter. 
and is at the heart of all proposals. This is not only key to maintaining and hopefully improving our reserve position, but to provide a cushion against economic or other threats. We must remember that our rainy day fund, now known as the Core Investment Reserve, is over £450 million short of funds. We should, if we can, be topping that up whenever we can. We live in very uncertain times, with war looming in the Middle East and much talk of economic recession as a result of the decade of printing money by developed economies. We need to be ready to protect the island's economy if we need to do so, and the cupboard is far more empty than I would personally like to see. So, what did the states actually decide to resolve all this? Well, it should be no surprise to anyone that a goods and services tax, GST, was rejected for the second time this year as policy and resources' main way to raise more revenue to pay for the growing demand on public services and to repay debt generated by borrowing hundreds of millions to crack on with infrastructure projects. They deemed borrowing essential to protect the island's savings and those investment returns. That also meant the states turned down other progressive elements of PR's package, including cutting income tax to 15% on the first £30,000 earned, reforming social security contributions so everyone gets a personal allowance and wouldn't have to pay out on their first chunk of income, and increasing benefits and the state's pension to combat the inflationary effect of a new tax on most purchases. Deputies instead backed the principle of raising around £25 million each year from a combination of new transport taxes, anticipated revenue from incoming global rules on corporate profit taxation and what's been called a levy on companies that do business in the island. Meanwhile, £10 million worth of savings could be found in government by 2028 too, although P&R, which will have to seek those out themselves, admit this may not be possible. The story isn't over for those transport taxes and the corporate levy, as detailed proposals need to be brought back to the states with exactly how they'll work in practice. Public opposition could see these fail to be agreed too. There'll be more on that later. After agreeing how much cash should be raised now, they turn to what number of projects should be funded in the next two years, and what amount of cash, if any, to borrow to help pay for them. There were three options. More than half a billion pounds spend with up to 350 million worth of borrowing for the longest list of capital projects. 200 million pounds worth of borrowing for a smaller list, but which included both the post-16 education campus and the next phase of the hospital modernisation project. And the final option, which was a much reduced list, which comprised just a few additional projects, such as investing in housing and flood defences at the bridge, and a list of 17 projects currently underway and too late to stop. These options were originally tied up together with the revenue-raising options, but Deputy Peter Roffey led a successful amendment to uncouple them, allowing a clean vote on taxes and projects in case some didn't want to sign up to such a major programme of building with high levels of borrowing. Ultimately, deputies decided to proceed this term with the shortest list of projects, totalling some £190 million with minimal borrowing. That means one of the flagship projects this term, Les Osway, for a new standalone sick form centre and the long-awaited single site for the Guernsey Institute has been put on ice indefinitely. But the hospital project, which wasn't originally part of this shorter list, did make the cut in the end after gaining enough support through an amendment from the Health Committee to bolt it on regardless with an additional cost of £130 million. There were other successes though, with PNR given authority to borrow up to £150 million over 40 years, so long as it's lent to a social housing provider such as the Guernsey Housing Association to 
deliver much-needed units of public housing. More details will need to be coughed up on the proposed investment at the bridge before the states agree to hand over the cash too. And the states will also look to develop new metrics to measure and incentivise capital investment from the private sector into infrastructure, as well as measuring capacity in the construction industry, which is an ongoing problem for the island. We will have more on all these outcomes in a bit, but first, let's jump into the amendments during debate. Politicians can challenge and try to change the main proposals on any given day. Here are some highlights from parts of those debates. It's generally acknowledged that Godfather Part 2 was better than the original. It did win six Oscars against the original three after all. But the question we have today is, have PNR provided us with an offer we can't refuse? Or is it more jewels of revenge? Some like me, people listening, might be might have been interested in a bit more in detail and substance than a string of movie titles. To say it's become rather tiresome during this debate, hearing about us being in lockstep with other jurisdictions. Lockstep and two smoking barrels. Perhaps a, a film title for Deputy Salisbury. The word that's been missing from this debate is anchovy. I can't stand anchovies. There's been no time for any feedback. Uh, no time for proper modelling of any of this. Not even any time for some badges and some flags to be made up. Politics is the art of the possible. We'll be voting for a pay cut for ourselves. I mean, really? I hugely respect Deputy Trot. He's probably one of the most intelligent members of this assembly. <laughs> and he, he, is, he usually brings very sensible amendments. But to be honest, I do think this is probably the worst thing he's ever done. Let's start with that hospital win. Health President Deputy Al Bruard won backing from state's members to crack on with the project, inserting it into every option on the table. He told deputies that while the cost may be eye-watering, it wasn't going to get any cheaper if they kicked it down the road. The project promises to widen capacity, cut waiting times, improve patient and staff experience and be revenue-raising by expanding the private patient offering, which could see people come to Guernsey for their medical treatments. Here's Deputy Liam McKenna explaining the last part. But the hospital is the heartbeat of our community and the idea of this new phase is to literally turn the second phase into the London Bridge Hospital where the Chief Minister was always hoping at the start of the term medical tourism. We can offer that because Victoria Wing will take up the new phase of Frossard and Loveridge. So it will be huge. And we can offer then people who've got private medical that we can then provide that service as a revenue stream with medical tourism. That's what the idea is. And it will be done like the London Bridge. If people say, well, I've never been to the London Bridge. Well, put it this way. If you're a fan of the Premier Inn, that's what you'll be getting as the Premier You will get the exact same as the London Bridge. It's the same architect is designing that for the hospital. It's a very expensive project, and so Deputy Bruard presented deputies with three options of how to fund it, with the decision made to plunder a savings pot known as the Guernsey Health Reserve, which currently holds around £120 million. Up to £90 million of that cash can now be used to pay for the project, with the remainder coming from either new borrowing or out of the existing capital reserve of some half a billion. Using that pot does have its risks, which are accepted by HSC and PNR, but it's set aside for health purposes. Currently, it's being used to deal with some of the waiting list problems and staffing issues blighting our health service. It's also being used for the time being to fund new treatments and medicines known as nice drugs. But cash for these will shortly come out of general revenue. 
Health got authority over that pot in 2019, but some deputies who were involved with that transfer of power have since said they didn't expect it to be raided quite so soon. It's not clear how or when this pot will be topped up once it's drained, which is an important question, as no one knows when the next health emergency will come at us. Deputy Breward has since told us he was extremely pleased with the states making a very positive investment into our community and for recognising the importance of health and social care as the island looks to cope with changing demographics. Rioy and Son, the builders currently delivering the first phase of the project, made great fanfare about the benefits of being able to stay on site and move seamlessly into the next part of the build. We asked them for their reaction to the latest decision, but they had no comment to make at this time. Moving on to education, which suffered a major defeat over Laosway. There was an attempt by Deputy Aidan Matthews to stop work on the proposed sixth form centre element of the project and continue with those studies at Laivarond instead of moving them temporarily to Lamar de Cartret until the new campus is built. This reignited the 10-year debate over what to do with secondary and post-16 education, and deputies rejected this attempt, with Deputy Victoria Oliver saying that meddling with the school model needed to stop and most deputies agreed with her. We've got to stop. We've got to make a decision on this because we're just going around in circles. And all of these things are... Not once have I mentioned the heard the children. Not once have I heard educational values. All I keep hearing about is the buildings. The buildings aren't there. The buildings should be there. The buildings should be there. I don't really care where the buildings are. Deputy Yvonne Burford, who supported the amendment, said she and others had received an anonymous email from a teacher who criticised the model itself, saying a standalone sixth form would be bad for timetabling and staff morale. I and a few other deputies have received an email from a member of teaching staff who, for very understandable reasons, wishes to remain anonymous. However, I have been given permission to quote from that email. The teacher states that many colleagues are extremely concerned about the damage that is being and will be done to our system of education by forming a standalone sixth form centre. The opposition is not to standalone sixth form centres per se, but to the micro scale of the one proposed at Les Osway. My correspondent goes on to say that Deputy Murray's recent claim that going to the is hemorrhaging teachers is correct, but the reason he gives, namely the delay in implementing the committee's plans, is absolutely not. Rather, the reason that so many staff are leaving is not delay or uncertainty, it is the plans themselves. It is pointing out that since the housing licence limitations have been removed, we should be losing very few staff from Le Barand, but the dislike of the model is the main driver for the losses because teachers do not like working on split sites. Recruitment will be made even harder. There are also significant concerns amongst teachers about timetabling on split site of three high schools and a separate sixth form and the impact of the new model on chances for promotion and by extension recruitment. But the views of senior educationalists were reported by Deputy Simon Fairclough who encouraged members to leave the plans alone. And the message I took away was that another change to the direction we're heading in would be catastrophic in terms of recruiting and retaining teachers. That's not to say that every single teacher is happy with the model that we've got. Who is happy with any model that's being put before us? But these are people who are trying to make things work in the interests of, of our students. 
Despite the plans being left alone after this debate, when it came to the final votes on what lists of projects to proceed with, education didn't make the cut, and the £100 million plus campus was defunded for the coming few years, leaving teachers, students, parents and the education department at a loss as to what happens next. The president of ESC, Deputy Andrea Dudley-Owen, has since told us that education, sport and culture fully intends to continue pushing forward with its plan for secondary education, despite losing political support for the immediate funding of it. During an interview earlier in the week, Deputy Dudley-Owen said the committee has to now sit very quietly and decide what its options are. However, she says that their plan for education has the backing of the state's chamber and is a plan that will need implementing at some point. She did say that there would be a significant amount of disappointment among parents, students and staff and the committee would now be working to support the local school community as it plans its next steps. The union reaction has been understandably negative too. One, the NEU, said given the uncertainty now created, the sixth form should not be relocated to Lamar, which was supposed to exit the education estate very soon, and instead expand facilities at Lavaron for sixth formers, exactly what the Matthews Amendment sought to do. The largest local union, NASUWT, had a different view, saying the states must find the funding somehow, as other options don't work even in the short term, and not doing so would be government negligence, setting a cohort up to fail. I spoke with Wayne Bates, Guernsey's negotiator for the NASUWT, who said over a decade these issues remain unresolved, and the fact we are still talking about it now is quite bizarre. It beggars belief to withdraw funding, he said. A decision which condemns teachers to working out of very poor buildings which should have been rebuilt decades ago. He worried the message being sent was that the states do not value education at all and predicted issues with staff recruitment, retention and morale. We think about what's happening uh, with the, the, particularly with the post-16. So we've, we've obviously got the, the issues with the Guernsey Institute but also the sixth form um, has really an unenviable um, choice between uh, uh, the Lamar de Cartridge site, which is at the end of its life already, or uh, the uh, Lavaren site, which went full uh, as, a, as an 11 to 16 school, if the sixth form is there as well, will be uh, quite significantly overcrowded. Um, and then you compound in all the other uncertainty about where we're actually going with, with education in Guernsey. It's, it's little wonder to think that um, a prospective uh, applicant for a job may be put off from from applying. Certainly, if you if you were to Google education in Guernsey, um, it's it's a pretty you know it, it's a tale of woe that really comes up, and that is certainly going to be having an impact on recruitment. But also, there's going to be I, I have no doubt in mind you know, teachers and lecturers now that have just had an absolute mess of this process that never seems to end. Uh, and we'll just be looking to to, to leave the island um, to get some to get some sure certainty rather, and also to to move to where the funding uh, and the resources are, are far better. The the states need to come up with the funding to do this properly. Um, we can't have a situation where uh, the sixth form is either in a in a site that's already at the end of its life for an indeterminate period, or it's horned into to another site that is uh, unacceptably overcrowded. Neither of those work in the short term, let alone the long term. So our position is very much that the states need to find the funding from somewhere uh, to allow the reorganisation that they've approved 
Strong words there, and many questions over how to move forward with Laosway. There have even been reports that some deputies didn't understand what they were voting on at the end of the debate and inadvertently defunded the education project despite wanting it to go ahead. This was also despite not having a sustainable way to fund both it and the hospital modernisation. I spoke with Deputy Burford, who expressed surprise online about this unusual revelation. To be fair, there were a lot of amendments, and um, as is often the case when when that happens, uh, the court staff produced... Um, a new list of propositions because otherwise you've got edits all over the place on you know the original list and so, so we had a consolidated list of everything and and you know steadily worked our way through those propositions but I, I thought it was all very straightforward but the point is i don't know if a lot of deputies didn't understand i mean deputy hellier um has claimed in you know it's in the press today that many members did not understand but I don't, we, we're not being sort of swamped in members coming forward saying they didn't understand. Now, whether this is private conversations that have gone on that I'm not aware of, I don't know. But, but is it the case that many members didn't understand? I don't really know if that's even so, but it all seems very strange. I think that, I mean, I think there is um, genuine and understandable concern um, for the education project, and I think that's split into two camps. I think there are very widespread um in the Assembly for the Guernsey Institute. However, I think where the split in the Assembly comes is that um, some members want the Les Osway campus with a new sixth form built attached to it, and um, others, and I'll put myself in the second group, um, feel that the sixth form ought to stay at Les Barons and children shouldn't be shipped off to Lamar for a few years either. Um, so I think that's where the split on education is, but there is certainly widespread support for the Guernsey Institute. But, you know, if we are going to go ahead with this project, we, we have to have a sustainable way of funding it, and that is what is lacking at the moment. Other amendments to PNR's options also failed to gain enough support. One was an attempt to delete the package on offer entirely and replace it with other smaller tax rises and phased reform of the states including savings and cuts. Deputy Heidi Soulsby brought it to the chamber, having resigned as the vice president of PNR last year, as her stance on GST was at odds with the rest of the committee. She brought a challenger package to the states in the January and February debates, self-titled as the fairer alternative. The vote was split 2020 on that occasion, so all eyes were on what was up her sleeve when the issue returned for debate this October. However, she and her supporters ended up losing four votes over that time, with a controversial new element of the amendment seemingly landing the death blow. This would have seen the state stop contributing to its own employees' pension fund for three years to generate some £70 million for infrastructure projects. But that idea was panned from many quarters as being unworkable and dangerous. Here's Deputy Jonathan Latoc's assessment. Great respect for uh, Deputy Soulsby and St. Pierre and Deputy Kildansa Miller as, as well. Um, but I have to say, sir, when uh, this amendment was published, I was rather shocked because I think it demonstrates the worst kind of financial planning from a collection of states members that I would have expected far far better from. Deputy Salisbury said on social media, this is the cost to the taxpayer as well. It is not. And the proposer and seconder of this amendment know that to be the case. This is scaremongering of the highest order. It's not conducive to a well-informed debate 
on something as serious as the financial health of our community. The fairer alternative was defeated with Deputy Bruard saying ulterior and Machiavellian motives may have been at play. I'm inclined to agree with, with my, my colleague Deputy Proud. This is really political uh, rather than financial because it's a sticking plaster. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the root problem that we have um, a lack of revenue coming in year in, year out. It just gives a stopgap to get us to the next election. Two other options, which were presented as fail-safes in the event the states couldn't agree on anything else, were prevented but both failed. The first was a revisit of corporation taxes, led by Deputy Charles Parkinson, who has tried on many occasions to get businesses to pay more before households. The states did agree to increase the amount taken from corporates as part of the core proposals, on top of the amount gained from the 0-10 system. But Deputy Parkinson wanted more. He said that the new OECD global corporate tax rules that are coming in in 2025 are practically what he wanted to be paid by all companies who make profits in the island, only they only applied to larger companies. Territorial taxes, as they are known, were therefore inevitable, he said. Some people in Guernsey have mistakenly suggested that this will apply to, as one commentator, so-called expert, said four or five companies in Guernsey. Um, this is completely uh, wide of the mark. Um, PNR's own update on the subject says it will apply to the majority of banks on the island and a large, large proportion of the captive insurance companies. But of course, it goes far wider than banks and insurance companies. For large companies at least, Guernsey will be adopting a territorial corporate income tax system by 2025. And that um, announcement is, is now in the public domain. So um, it doesn't matter what Gieber or anyone else thinks about territorial corporate income tax systems. We are going to have one for larger companies. So this ship of corporate income tax reform is already on the slipway, ready to be launched, and it's going to be launched, whatever this assembly decides today. And this is, uh, these developments have changed informed opinion on corporate tax reform. Um, in January, Deputy Latoc told us that a member of the government of one of the other Crown dependencies had expressed incredulity that Guernsey might consider reforming its corporate tax system and suggested that the other Crown dependencies would exploit this against us. But in fact, they have joined us in announcing the first steps towards a territorial corporate income tax. A senior member of the government of Jersey, a minister in Jersey's government, told me uh, some time ago, in fact, that he thought that attitudes in Jersey to reform of 010 were softening. And now we start to see the fruits of that change. But the idea of stepping out of line with Jersey and the Isle of Man was seen as too risky, given they are our main competitors. Those who criticised territorial taxes did, however, accept that Deputy Parkinson's view that they would have to be brought in anyway in a few years was likely. But Guernsey should wait for everyone to take that step together. Here's Deputy Lyndon Trott and Hellyer. There's a very good reason why successive policy and resources committees have come to the same conclusion. There's a very good reason why investigative committees come to the same conclusion. And there is a very good reason why our International Financial Services Committee uh, community gives us the same answer over and over again. There will be a time, but it's not now. So be it.
That's a fantastic thing because we have nothing to lose by moving together at the same time as everybody else. We have everything to lose by jumping out of the plane without a parachute. Leading business groups in the island were unavailable for comment this week to react to the defeat of territorial tax, how the new OECD global rules will work and the prospect of a new levy on companies. The final revenue-raising backstop was presented by Deputy Trot, a former Chief Minister, Treasury Minister and the current Chair of Guernsey Finance. If all else failed, he wanted income tax to be increased to 23% by 2025 to at least raise some extra cash and prevent reputational embarrassment. I can't think of anything worse than leaving here with nothing. And I can't find a member of this assembly, I can't, I've asked almost everyone, I can't find a member of this assembly who genuinely believes um, that we are going to support the introduction of a goods and services tax this afternoon. And I haven't asked the same question of all members or most members with regards borrowing. I can't believe for a moment uh, we're going to uh, borrow uh, the sorts of amounts necessary uh, to fulfil our objectives. Don't leave here with nothing. You know, you all know which way you're going to vote on GST. And you know that we could leave here with absolutely no revenue-raising initiatives. And that would be, in my view, an absolute abrogation of our duties. But he was held in contempt by some for, on the one hand, rejecting corporate tax changes based on moving out of lockstep with the other Crown dependencies, but proposing we should increase our wage taxes above those jurisdictions. Deputy Peter Roffey, who helped investigate and shape PNR's tax and social security reform package, said they looked at income tax but discounted it as it would have unfairly hit a shrinking number of workers hard and wouldn't have moved the island away from that reliance which has got us into this financial mess in the first place. I'd rather walk out with nothing and go back to the drawing board than end up with something which is absolutely appalling. Please, members, I've looked at this in depth. Don't do it. As said before, there were some wins, including borrowing up to £150 million into the 2060s to be lent to an organisation that can provide, manage and maintain social housing, such as specialist, partial ownership and social rental homes. This form of borrowing was said to be as safe as houses, as the rental stream created would ensure the money can be paid back with no additional cost to taxpayers. While this won support, there were warnings that the number of homes the island needs, some 1,000 new units in both the private and public sector, as forecasted by the states, for just the next five years, is presenting major capacity problems. The door was therefore left open for this cash to be lent to the Guernsey Housing Association or another provider. We reached out to the GHA for an interview, but they were unable to this week. But there was a promise to sit down with them and discuss these important points in detail in the coming weeks. That'll be on Bailiwick Express soon. The Alderney Airport project was also a victor of the capital project's portfolio that was decided by the states. That involves lengthening the runway, widening the runway and hardening the surface, as well as constructing a new terminal, fencing and a fire station. This was all agreed by the states last year. I spoke to Alderney representative Alex Snowden about what this means for his community. The tarmac is, is end of life, the runway is end of life. The project is essential that it progresses as it as has been um, pointed out and it's uh, following, all I know is that it's following the timeline correctly and um, hopefully it will be coming to the end of the process or the tenders soon um, to make sure that this important infrastructure project for the island is taken forward and delivered. Well I'm actually 
yet ordinary airport at the moment with the Ministry of Justice who are just about to look around the runway and I think everyone understands the importance of actually getting on and delivering this project. It's been so many years that this has taken to sort of get to the final stages and now we are at the final stage. It's absolutely essential that this project is delivered as has been argued and debated with resolutions for quite a number of time now. So I think um, a sort of relief is when we actually get the tarmac laid and we actually move to the aviation model that is needed because at the moment, until we actually get that uh, project delivered, it's concerning because you don't know if it's going to be closed the wrong way due to um, uh, cracking in the tarmac and what the level of the service is. Some items which weren't focused on revenue raising or capital projects did get through. Deputy Andy Taylor got his wish for PNR to cough up more details on a proposed investment at the bridge, including what's being purchased, assurances over due diligence into the involved development partners, and enhanced scrutiny of the project generally. Meanwhile, Deputy Kazantseva Miller found strong support for a series of propositions to improve government data on how much private business is investing into the island and how the construction industry is faring to build a broader picture. There could also be incentives provided, such as tax breaks, to encourage development. Here's her interview with Kit. The amendment is trying to almost like lay out a framework of how we should be potentially looking at capital, uh, both public uh, capital investment and private capital investment as well. So I think one of the key additions to, to the thinking is around uh, how can we as government unlock more private uh, investment uh, on the island. I've monitored very closely what's been happening in other jurisdictions in terms of that, them developing their economic development strategies, Jersey and Isle of Man in particular, and consistently looking at capital expenditure on Ireland is one of the key levers we have. So along with skills, so human capital, then capital, then physical capital, if we can unlock those two um, in an environment of, you know, strong business competitive environment, uh, then I think we're, you know, halfway there in terms of a successful like, economic strategy. So I really was keen to bring that kind of thinking into government. So really understanding better what levels of capital expenditure we should be hitting. I think also better understanding that there is different capital expenditure. So capital expenditure such as on social housing will generate income, right? So it's not just taxpayer funding public services. Um, so it's it, there's many nuances of what is capital expenditure, how we should be funding it, and really being a bit more creative of how we could be unlocking some of those uh, funding mechanisms. And I gave the example of the pool marina. I've seen, um, you know, STSB has been very hard uh, working on on bringing proposals of how we could bring around the pool marina and how we can fund that. And I was, uh, I was very positively uh, encouraged about what I saw. So I think hopefully they will be public um, soon. Hopefully they'll become a policy paper. And that's the kind of thinking we need to be putting. How do we work with the private uh, sector? How do we tap into uh, different funding mechanisms, whether it's um, ESG type uh, private financing, even philanthropic bonds, uh, debenture type instruments, etc. So I'm quite encouraged in terms of what I'm seeing. And how do those sort of alternative funding mechanisms work in practice? I mean, you know, it might be, I suppose the public might be a bit nervous about projects. And I think there's been a lot of, and you know, arguably um, unnecessary criticism of the Paul Marina project. People think that it's actually going ahead when uh, nothing's been decided yet. And we're not sure how we're actually going to fund that. So how would sort of a public partnership, an ESG 
bond work in that sort of circumstance? I think it has to be project on project basis. So I don't think we can say all of public expenditure could be up for uh, this kind of innovative financing. So I think, first of all, it has to be project by project basis. I would have thought that funding the, uh, the housing program, the affordable housing program, will be one of the prime examples of where we could be tapping into more of the impact type um, bonds or ESG type bonds um, where you are able to get a lower rate of uh, interest because you're looking to meet certain ESG type uh, targets and obligations. So I think to me the affordable housing program would be one of them potentially the energy transition in terms of financing uh, uh, the the energy uh, uh, policy or elements uh, behind it could be one of them. Um, and also then looking at, um, especially where you do have income streams such as a pool marina, perhaps developments around the harbors. So everything that dev the development agency that might be looking into, I think there's a lot of scope for, uh, for more innovative uh, funding and partnership type projects there. Okay, interesting. Is there, is there demand from industry or appetite for them to get involved in these types of things, but there's just sort of barriers in the way or just things that are preventing them from doing it at the minute? Well, we know how quickly industry reacted to the latest budget proposals to phase out a tax tax relief on investments into commercial property. They were they were on it straight away. So we probably underestimate um, that. Uh, how, how important certain levers that we currently have, whether in budget or in our existing fiscal policy, out there. But I, I, th I think that I think we can do much more to encourage more um, uh, pr private investment uh, into. Um, Absolutely, when we're talking about the buildings and the regeneration side of things, housing, potentially commercial development. And I think that's where the development agency with the Eastern Seaboard is quite important. In economic development, I've been personally driving the, the ideas around uh, enterprise or regeneration zones. And I think um, we're quite keen to align that work with the local planning briefs that development planning authority is working and mm. with the development agency, whether it's around the airport, whether it's around the especially the bridge areas. So I think there's quite interesting concepts of what we can do there, public-private uh, investment into unlocking development in all these areas. But also then uh, I was keen to make sure technology, investment into technology. So whether it's IT systems, it's your internal uh, capability, the software you're using to run your, you know, operations, the way you're developing services and products as a business. I think that's a key, also to me, capital type investment that businesses can make into their own into their own operations. And if we can um, make them more productive so that you're using you're better using technology maybe you're using ai you're streamlining your compliance you are you know you you need less than potentially people to do the same amount of work and then that can help solve some of our problems around labor shortages it can help people upscale into more productive high value jobs etc so it's investment both into physical assets as we call them it could be buildings machinery um, even cars mm. uh, and investment into IT and digital capability is, I think is equally important. But there's a risk 
that all of this could be thrown up in the air after Deputy Peter Furbrush, the president of PNR, dropped a bombshell just minutes after the end of the debate. While some called the outcome of the debate inevitable, most deputies were still shocked with Deputy Furbrush's suggestion of an early election, a seemingly knee-jerk response to losing their flagship policy for a second time. So, how feasible is an early election? Well, this is where it gets complicated, and the situation continues to unfold by the hour. But as of recording on the 26th of October, this is the state of play. The State's Assembly and Constitution Committee is responsible for the rules behind general elections, how they are undertaken and what is feasibly possible. Deputy Furbrush met with the President of SAC, Deputy Karl Meerveld, on the day of the debate to discuss lodging an amendment for an early general election. This never happened, but Deputies Furbrush and Meerveld continued to speak about how feasible an early general election could be, with Deputy Furbrush arguing that if it isn't possible this side of next summer, it would be pointless. It's understood that further meetings will be held to better understand how soon a general election could be triggered. If PNR thinks it's possible in a compressed time frame, it intends to submit the idea to the Assembly for debate. The committee might not make it that far, however. Deputy Charles Parkinson has since lodged a motion of no confidence in PNR, asking the committee to resign. Instead of asking the current tranche of deputies to essentially fire themselves, he's argued that the chief minister and his committee should just quit instead. His motion has been officially signed by six other deputies and is now being supported by Deputy Meerveld himself after he fell out with the Chief Minister. And PNR were given five working days to resign or the motion would be elevated to the bailiff and debated by the full assembly. PNR has until the 31st of November to decide its position. And there we are, a dramatic conclusion to a dramatic debate, with huge questions left unanswered. Given some of the revelations, there should be pause for thought for voters in all this. If there is an early election, the electric should think hard about what can and can't be delivered, and if they trust their deputies to read the order paper correctly. Whether it's 2024 or 2025, though, major questions on taxation and spending remain. The next PNR will need to report back in 2026 with another investigation into taxes and what should be done, while other measures due to be presented to the states could provoke outrage. Paid parking? Width charges? Distance tracking? All are on the table. We spoke to Robert Cornelius, president of the Guernsey Motor Trades Association, on the prospect of these new taxes. Here's his statement read out by a member of our team. Following the debate, it does not surprise the GMTA that the states would look at additional taxes from the motorist. Obviously, we would need more information on exactly what these might include and how they would be administered before we would comment. However, we would like to remind the states of Guernsey that road tax was removed as an annual payment and placed onto fuel as this meant the polluter paid, and we would request they bear this in mind when looking at future taxes. For information, currently 80.9 pence per litre on fuel is charged as duty and 70.9 pence per litre of renewable diesel RD100. However, the states need to consider everything when looking at this topic, as it may lead to increased costs to business and changes to motorist habit, which then has a knock-on effect to the actual taxes raised, so they need to be careful when contemplating these. As for opposition, we think there will be a fair amount from motorists, as this seems like they are an easy target for additional tax every time more money is needed. 
Taxes should be fair and shared across all industries. The automotive side does need to be looked at, as the way we move around and type of power we use to move around is changing fast. However, it should not just be the motorists, which is a point we have always made. A bumpy road ahead then. As questions swirl over resignations, votes of no confidence and the election, the difficulties that have faced this state are best summed up by Deputy Roffey on the final day of the debate. I'm not sure. The work ought to be done ASAP, but actually I'm not sure there's any point in this assembly having another go at it. I don't think there is a majority in this assembly for any really major revenue-raising measure. I think the can is just going to have to disappear 18 months down the road uh, to the next lot, and, um, and good luck to them. But I do fear where Guernsey is going. I really fear whether we have the resolution I've served in many, many assemblies since 1982. There were some were good, some were bad, but most of them, when it really pushed came to shove, had the resolution to do what needed to be done, and I'm not sure we have any more. listening to Focus, a Bailiwick Express podcast. If you enjoyed this investigation, please share, like and subscribe so we at Bailiwick can continue to pull apart the issues that affect you, the listener. Thank you for joining us.